0: hi i'm mark Fontaine and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Surfs design show podcast here's another podcast exclusive episode just for you when i entered the service design field back in 2006 you couldn't study service design at a university i literally had to learn everything on the job and you could even say that for a large part we still had to invent the service design practice in general. We borrowed and stealed a lot of knowledge from other fields that were remotely related to service design and also shared a lot back, back then about how we work and learned by getting feedback on that. Today, you see that there's a big variety in the backgrounds of service design professionals. Some have had formal education. Some have entered the field from a previous job and later got a certification. And some still have just learned everything on the job. In this episode, we're going to explore what the influence is of different backgrounds on your service design practice. We'll talk about when are you actually ready to start practicing service design and how much should you know about the theory. We'll also discuss if you actually need to get a service design degree or certification. Talk about the blind spots when you have learned service design on the job and maybe most importantly How do you beat the imposter syndrome and know that you're good enough to do the work? Our guest in this episode is Emily Winograd. As you'll hear emily has joined the service design field having studied something completely different she shares how that has shaped her practice and the impact that it's had on her confidence to do good work if you stick around till the end of the conversation you'll learn about a very useful framework that helps you to have an open conversation about different backgrounds with the people around you so you can grow as a team This episode is very much inspired by the conversation we recently had in our Circle community. The Circle is a community for busy in-house service design professionals and all about sharing practical wisdom. It's a place where you can slow down and reflect on your practice. Something I found many in-house service designers struggle with when they are doing the actual work. So if you're an in-house service designer who wants to connect with and learn from other peers, consider joining the Circle. For all the details on how you can apply, head over to servicedesignshow.com Circle and you'll also find the link in the show notes down below. Having said that, it's almost time to get into the conversation with Emily. The only thing left for me to say is let the show begin. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thanks for having me. Uh, really looking forward to having this uh, chat with you on a very interesting topic that I think a lot of service designers will be able to relate to. Um, but before we dive into that, as always, I think it would be great to hear a little bit about who you are and what you do these days. So could you give a brief introduction? Sure.
1: Uh, so my name is Emily Winograd. I'm a design strategist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, which is a cancer specialty hospital in New York. And uh, I've been working here for about a year and a half, loving it. And before that, I worked at WeWork for a brief stint as an experienced strategist. And then prior to that, I had a number of years in the nonprofit world and kind of a design consulting role. So in total, maybe about seven or eight years of service design and strategic design experience and many years of listening to your podcast and feeling (laughs) so inspired.
0: Cool. Well, now you're now you're on uh, the Service Design Show podcast stage. Uh, wow. A Dream Control, <laughs> <laughs> um, you uh, have participated in the campfires for in-house service designers, and uh, based on that, I invited you to also uh, host a session in our circle community for in-house service designers. And you gladly accepted and came up with a really interesting topic that you uh, gave uh, a very cool title. What was the title of your talk?
1: Hopefully, I won't be sued for copyright infringement for this. I titled the talk, How to Train Your Service Designer, like the movie How to Train Your Dragon. And um, I was excited about this topic because having participated in the first campfire, now Circle, I found it to be a really intimate space where people can kind of talk about things that they wouldn't be able to normally discuss in a professional environment. And this felt like one of those topics that can be so sensitive because we're talking about people's training and qualifications for their roles. And I thought, what better place to work out my own big thoughts about, about these questions than in the circle?
0: Yeah, we need a space to be able to reflect and uh, be vulnerable, uh, have conversations as we wouldn't otherwise have maybe on stages where it really sort of matters. Uh, Absolutely. What do you, what do you hope um, someone who's listening right now will walk away with at the end of our conversation?
1: I think the main, my main hope that people will take away is a sense of creative confidence, that whatever background they come from, wh- however they've been trained as a service designer and whatever textbooks they may or may not have read, That their work can speak for itself and they should feel free to propose an approach to the work that makes sense and see how it goes and then for those people that maybe have more formal training or experience i hope people walk away feeling flexible and open and recognizing the value that someone can bring that's coming from a little bit of a different perspective and just know that you know what really matters is the outcome and the work and we're all serving the same goal
0: so we're going to address like the tension between formal Education, training and service design versus learning on on the job, what my background is. I basically learned everything on the job and the compromises that we need to make there and what, how that influences the kind of work we do. But I'm really curious, Emily, what, why did you pick this topic? How, why is it important to you?
1: A couple of reasons and they're all very personal. So I appreciate you sharing where you're coming from too. You know, for me, being from the United States, where graduate school can be a very expensive and time-consuming proposition, I always knew that I wouldn't go back to school unless I knew exactly what I wanted to do and had a clear business case for why I needed to do it. And what happened was, so fortunately, that by the time I figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up, I was already doing it. And there never came a point where I necessarily felt like I needed to be doing anything different other than the jobs that I've done where I've learned so much. So even though you know, I have an undergraduate degree in sociology, which has really been a foundation for everything I do in this field, so much of my learning has been on the job. And I've learned so much from many people who have formal training in graduate school, but I also am ready to am uh, ready to face the fact that my on the job training has given me a lot of skills and value that I can contribute. I don't have to feel like it is in any way less than someone, someone else's experience in a different space. So that was one piece of it. And then another piece that really substantiated that for me is um, just having the opportunity at this point to work in a number of different environments that valued um, really different skills in designers from rigor to speed, um, oftentimes a a trade-off between rigor and speed, and just had different ways of approaching things. Sometimes a really flexible, open design process that's adaptable to every project, sometimes a kind of rigid one that you're always doing the same thing. And so I was just noticing that and recognizing that in every place that I've worked, people think that that is the norm and everyone adapts to it. But if you if you look across the field, people are approaching things in so many different ways. And so it made me just want to open up this conversation about what what path our training leads us to in terms of how we approach design and what is the right path. And the, the secret is that there probably isn't one.
0: Yeah. What, what is the right path? Uh, I've been experiencing so many people over the years who. Um, literally stumbling upon service design like they've been practicing service design tools, methods, attitude, mindset for a very long time. And at some point they realize it has a name and um, it they start to ask a lot of questions. Like, do I actually need to formalize the things I've learned throughout the years? Uh, I've had mm-hmm. those thoughts as well. I can imagine you had as well. What did, what did it do to your um, career sort of being a service design practitioner, knowing what you're doing, but not having the uh, accreditation or the stamp of approval from an uh, external entity?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, too, have had that conversation with myself and over the years, as you know, have gotten a couple of certifications that were obviously really helpful. One of them was from Ido. The other one was from the Interaction Design Foundation, where I volunteered for a number of years, um, and they were great and I learned a lot, but they also definitely stood as a retroactive credential to kind of validate some things that I already knew and be able to put that stamp of approval on it. So I felt like, you know, if there was a quick and dirty way to do it, there's no harm in doing it. But um, honestly, I think that a lot of my positioning in my career has been more about the way that I frame it than about the actual labels of the education institutions I've been part of. So where I've seen a shift is, you know, in making my first jump from the nonprofit world to a little bit more like the corporate world. Um, I really needed to have greater confidence in myself that I had developed the skills that I needed, as opposed to feeling like an institution was standing behind me and validating me. And once I could do that, I think my work spoke for itself.
0: So um, when you say you needed greater confidence, uh, and if we get too personal, please let me know, Uh, but (laughs) I'd love to know, what do you think, um, uh, what made you lack the confidence? why didn't you have it in the first place
1: that's a good question. I think it's common um, early in one's career I don't want to generalize I am speaking for myself but I think it's common early in one's career when you've had limited exposure to different institutions to feel like just around the corner there must be someone who really knows what they're doing and if you just go to that place um, then then you'll find it and then you can quickly learn what everything that they already know um, so I think that you know in applying for jobs, at least very early on, I talk about this a lot with people who ask me about um, building a portfolio or getting their first job in the field. I have this attitude that a lot of, let's say, recent college graduates have of like, ooh, take a chance on me. I'll work so hard. Um, And like, I can do it. And um, I think that's fundamentally an attitude that employers really shy away from because every employer at the end of the day has a problem. And if you are the potential candidate, you have to come in and have a solution. So, um, it it forces you to become your biggest champion and to really believe that you're the person who has that solution. So that's the advice I always give people and it's the advice I had to take for myself. And I really saw an immediate shift in the way that my um, interviewing, my, my portfolio presentations, the way everything started going when I realized, hey, the experiences I've had like represent just a perfect crystallization of how the design process plays out in in this nonprofit consulting world that I've been in. And so if there's... Um, there's absolutely nothing about it that doesn't qualify me for the next opportunity.
0: Hmm. That's great. Like when you discover that uh, confidence and are able to put it into practice, um, what do you feel? And uh, we're going to generalize a lot in this episode, but that's, uh, that's okay uh, for the sake of uh, creating some contrast. What do you feel is the um, current situation when you see service designers, you speak to them um, do you you recognize that imposter syndrome? And if so, like what is, I would almost say, so what? Like all of us have imposter syndrome to a certain extent. Even you, Mark? Uh, You should have known, yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, okay, well, I'm glad you mentioned imposter syndrome because I feel like that was one of the touchstones that came out in our circle conversation. And uh, there were two surprises to me in that conversation. One is how many people participating in the circle come from some kind of formal graduate background in service design. So for that, I applaud you. You guys are the early adopters and you're on the cutting edge, and it's great that you've been able to put that into practice. Um, but the other thing that surprised me is how many people still named the imposter syndrome that they feel. And I think the so what behind that um, is that if people feel like imposters, then they're limiting their creativity and the contribution that they can make to the work. At the end of the day, a workplace a healthy design workplace is one where people have creative confidence to try new things and propose solutions instead of everyone looking over their shoulder thinking someone else knows better and waiting to be told what to do so i think the consequence of people not feeling confidence is that the work suffers from stagnation or from everyone looking around waiting for someone else to to know exactly what to do
0: and if that's the case and i again recognize that that uh, uh, you yeah, so- A lot of the times you feel that you're sort of building the airplane while you're falling out of the sky you just you're just winging it and then hoping for the best (laughs) but yeah the the reality is that you actually know pretty well what you're doing it just feels like very improvised and uh, on the spot but you're using all your years of experience all your backgrounds like you know a lot of stuff but it feels uh very improvised and it feels uh very on the spot so um, yeah, I recognize that. So I'm, I'm curious. Um, have you, do you have an example, maybe or a story where this um, tension between like having a formal education uh, versus just coming into service design from any other background and learning it on the job? Um, yeah, story where sure. there was oh, tension. Yeah. yeah.
1: Definitely. And I think these stories kind of knit together over the various organizations I've had the chance to work in. And they they all have, one of the things I definitely don't want to leave anyone with the impression of is that I think that somehow one type of education or training is better than another. I really believe, and we could talk about the framework that I made to have this conversation with the group. I think all of the quadrants in that framework are really valid. If you have totally informal training in theory or totally formal training with lots of practice, it's all good. But I think, you know, each of them has each of those combinations of training and practice have some benefits and some significant blind spots. And so if we want to go negative for a second, like what's the worst case scenario that can happen? um, I definitely have experienced some blind spots of organizations that are too balanced toward one or the other or favor strongly one type of person over another. Um, I've seen places where people um, who are great designers have been made to feel unworthy, um, or somehow like the way that they're approaching things is wrong because they don't, um, use the the same terminology that someone who's academically trained would use and don't have the same potentially level of rigor in the way that they are designing, whether it's, you know, designing a whole process or designing like a a facilitated workshop. Um, and it can be really challenging for people to feel held to a high standard of perfection, especially in a space where, um, Arguably, you know, there may be some objective standard or academic rigor that is that is out there, but it's certainly not the only way that the job could get done. And then I want to be very quick to mention on the flip side, um, places I've worked where, frankly, or places that I've seen where, frankly, like, you know, design from from framing the challenge to discovery to synthesis is all done within two weeks, maybe three weeks. And each time is in the service of one kind of predetermined output, like a sales pitch. And that too, you know, is compromising integrity and losing the ability to make real change through the work. So on both extremes, there are definitely blind spots and there are great benefits if people can recognize um, what they bring to the table and a little bit resist whatever is the prevailing wind in their organization.
0: Yeah, and uh, we've had conversations about both ends uh, quite a lot on the show. Uh, The superficial way of doing design versus like the... uh, almost religious uh, practice of design, like both can be quite uh, damaging and limiting. Now you mentioned something about a framework and this is a podcast, so we'll have to visualize uh, in our heads (laughs) how the framework looks, but uh, could you take us through it?
1: Sure. Everyone will be able to quickly visualize like a, what do you call it? Like a a matrix with two axes. Two by two. Yeah. A two by two. Thank you. Everything's a two by two. I love two by twos. Um, So, Uh, our y-axis on this framework was informal to formal and our x-axis was theory to practice. And through workshopping this a little bit with my team back at MSK and with the Circle team, kind of realized that some of the definitions of those terms can be a little fluid. But basically, for example, if you think about the formal to informal spectrum, maybe like the the most extreme, you know, formal training is having a graduate degree where service design is the subject matter, but somewhere in the middle could be, you know, participating in a certificate program like the Interaction Design Foundation, where, you know, it's not a full graduate program, but you are being taught these texts and methods and, uh, and theory. Um, and maybe somewhere at the bottom is somebody who just checked out all the books from the library and read them and is kind of um, self-training um, or even just learning on the job. So we asked everyone to situate themselves on that spectrum from informal to formal. And then also, you know, from whether they feel like they have more knowledge of design service design theory or more experience in practice. And then through that kind of facilitated a discussion where people told stories about, Um, moments where their background either gave them some kind of tangible benefit um, or, and sometimes in the same story, give them a blind spot that they needed to overcome.
0: And uh, plotting yourself, and I would encourage uh, somebody who's listening right now to actually do that, draw that uh, two-by-two matrix uh, in front of you and plot yourself, where would you be? And using that matrix, we were able to, and that's the great power of uh, design, like visualizing and seeing patterns. Uh, you mentioned already something about patterns that emerge in our group. Could you share something about that?
1: I was really fascinated, not just by, so what I mentioned before is that many people found themselves in the formal practice quadrant. And even though there was some variation in where people placed themselves, it was pretty central in that area. But then we also asked them to map two other types of people. One is a colleague that they really admire, maybe someone who has some kind of magic that they don't have, and then a colleague with whom they have creative tension. And a lot of those people, I felt like what was super interesting is many of those people exhibited more extreme tendencies than our participants, which told me, of course, that we always exaggerate what we think about other people, and we don't really know how they would situate themselves, that so they were like really out there. They're all about theory. They're all about informal Um but it, it was cool to see how that distribution played out, and we didn't have that much time to dig into it. But it really seems like some of the people we admire most have some of the opposite skills from us, or at least are opposite somewhere on the spectrum. And similarly, many of the people we have tension with, even if we, um, you know, ostracize them to the outskirts of the matrix, like some bogeyman of theory, like you know, they they are different from us as well.
0: So v- visualizing this and uh, seeing the these things literally in front of you uh at least for me created a, a sense of um appreciation that there isn't just one way that there are uh different ways different backgrounds and uh I I really liked your question about what is the blind spot so um even in, like myself who has a on the job uh training uh education Like I have a lot of blind spots, but it was really helpful to also see what the blind spots are of the other uh, quadrants and uh, what strengths you bring to the table. So I I found it a very um, eye-opening and constructive conversation using this framework. How did you experience it?
1: Yeah, for me too, I mean, it was a world debut. So there's probably a lot more structure we could create around how to have this conversation. But yeah, I felt that too. It gave me a lot of peace to know how much admiration, I thought that was one of the most interesting things, how much admiration people hold for people, um, for colleagues who are somewhere else on the quadrants, which really tells me that there, there's so much to learn. Um, and we should always be thinking about where each of us wants to learn and grow. Someone from my team, um, a wonderful colleague, suggested that you know this is a great exercise to do, especially with a group of people that's really invested in each other's professional development, like an actual service design team within an organization or a firm so I think I think that would be really interesting to explore because the circle, you know, our session was a moment in time, but I could definitely see a team, you know, using this as a, a jumping off point to think about how how we value each other's skills and contributions and then also just have an authentic conversation about where we where we need to learn and grow.
0: And and this was the power of again uh, this framework that it gives you something to discuss. And uh, when you mentioned uh, the imposter syndrome and like lacking the confidence, it also helps you to see that um, people with a different background they aren't perfect either. And oh. and that's that's sort <laughs> of very comforting uh, to know. And uh, it helps to see that you can actually you you have specific skills, you have specific values that you do bring to the table, uh, and you, you shouldn't compare yourself to somebody else, but you should see how you can uh, benefit each other, learn from each other. Absolutely. Um, now, at the end of our conversation in the circle, uh, you sort of wrapped up with a few best practices. Would you be able to share them with us here as well? Sure,
1: I'd be happy to. I was definitely looking to have some emergent takeaways from the session and certainly those are all the things that we discussed but i did come with a point of view from from my experience such as it is and there were a few things i wanted to share um the first one is some advice that i got from a wonderful former colleague and and someone who was coaching me a little bit in my professional growth um, and she told me that service design is a map not a geography I i don't know if she used those exact words but I, and I don't know if other countries do geography bees, but basically, you can think about service design not as a finite body of knowledge that either you know or you don't know. And if you don't know it, you better frantically catch up with everybody else who knows everything already. But it's a toolkit. And once you know kind of like the basic set of tools and a basic process, you can kind of continue to hone it as you employ it in different contexts. And kind of the more you apply it, the more you can riff on it and basically continue to develop your skills. But once you reach a certain point of literacy, it's a literacy that you can continue to practice. It's not a a body of of mastery that you need to achieve.
0: So can I ask a question around this? Because um, when do you know you have enough knowledge to start?
1: That's a good question. Sooner than you think? (laughs) I don't know, read this as service design thinking, read this as service design doing. If you're going through it and being like, cool, these are good details, but like I pretty much like there's nothing in here that's like giving me like a huge shock. You might be there. Mm hmm.
0: Mm hmm. You don't have. Yeah, you don't have to study it for a number of years like, um, yeah,
1: Okay. maybe your next guest will disagree with me and I totally welcome that.
0: Well, I'm I'm looking for your experience here. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So it's, uh, it's an expanding body of knowledge. And uh, you have a, if you have the basic knowledge, you can already start applying it and then taking it from there. Right. That's, yeah, that pretty much. I mean, I'm yeah. not
1: putting, I'm not putting a number of years or an, or an amount of sure. study or a format of study on it. It's just, it's just like doing design research. When do you know you're done? You reach this point of least astonishment. You start hearing the same things you've heard before and you say, okay, like I've heard about prototyping. I've never done service prototyping or I've never done paper prototyping, but I know what prototyping is. I know what is and is not a prototype. I know it enough to try it. So now I can try all these other methods in the toolkit.
0: Hmm. Okay. And what was the other thing that you mentioned?
1: I had a couple of points for people who are kind of finding themselves on either side of the spectrum from feeling really new and nervous and impostery um, to feeling like they really know what they're doing and have a lot of academic training. I feel like I have less to say to that group, but I'll say it anyway. Um, I think for people who are feeling more new and, and uh, self-conscious that paradoxically, it's better to just be self-aware about your blind spots and be honest and authentic about what you want to learn. Because number one when you're honest and authentic people want to help you and teach you and and help guide you through your growth and it's also really hard to hide your blind spots or the things you don't know because you don't know what you don't know so you'll end up kind of posing a little bit Uh, so better to just diagnose your growth areas ask your colleagues to help you learn and just just be ready be ready to be guided through the experience and then for those who are um, a little bit more you know on the experienced or, or highly trained side of the spectrum I think it's always important to stay flexible and open to learning because what I've seen that I think should be avoided is people kind of bickering over the definition of terms. What is a what is a prototype? What is a persona? What is a this or that? And I know that those terms have real meaning. And probably if I had academic training, I would be, I would probably be among the people that like cares a little bit about getting it right. And I know I, I completely understand where that comes from. But I think it's important to ask ourselves sometimes. Does this truly affect the outcome? Is the contrary view wrong or is it just different? And is it possible to just be able to align and go forward and work together? Because like the work is not served by us kind of sitting in in council with each other, um, debating these
0: points. I think I'm on the spectrum and it wasn't in the two by two matrix where I, I have a quite pragmatic approach to service design. Like um, to, to a pretty high degree, it's like, let's just do what works. Like, rather than seeing if it's, um, if the theory is correct, uh, it's good to know that there are theories like grounded theory and that there is uh, yeah. scientific research. And it would maybe benefit our field if more of that would be made available and accessible, maybe something for the service design show. Um, but I feel a lot of service design breaks in reality, not in theory. So, Yeah, I I tend to have quite a pragmatic approach towards the things we do. Yeah.
1: It's interesting you mentioned grounded theory. I'm always so wowed by it. Like when I see it at a conference or see someone presenting and showing like the data coding that they did and the amazing work they did, it reminds me of my sociology degree. And I remember how it's done, but I've rarely worked in a place that um, allowed for necessarily that type of rigor. And also, you know, to your point, what is what is the means to the end? It doesn't have to be the minimum viable means, but. yeah, I, I'm I'm very wowed and inspired when I see something super rigorous or um, kind of with with a great theoretical grounding, and I also recognize like a lot of my practice is inflected by pragmatism.
0: And th- that's it. Um, did you have another one? Uh, because we had uh, two.
1: Uh, I think that those were the main ones. Yeah, those were okay. Those are the main things.
0: So, what do you see as if these are? Uh, From your uh, experience, the best practices, quote-unquote, what is the main roadblock that you see people having from not uh, building this uh, creative confidence, this design confidence?
1: I think on the one side, it's really hard to watch people be wrong. I've had that experience, and uh, I I get it. Um, And that can be hard to overcome when you have a lot of expertise in an area. And I don't have the solution for that, but I understand it. And then on the other side, a sign that I really understand well, I think people are afraid to be vulnerable. And uh, the more imposter syndrome someone feels, I think the harder it can be to be vulnerable about blind spots and growth areas. So something that's important to me and that I feel fortunate to have in my workplace is a psychologically safe environment for growth. So a place where you're not worried about losing your job if you admit that there's something that your team wants to do that you've never done before. Um, or that, you know, you're, you're trying something new and you don't know if it's going to work.
0: So let's dig into this one because um, like you you get hired. And this is something you also mentioned in our conversation. Like you get hired to be the expert.
1: Yeah.
0: And not knowing, uh, presenting that as an expertise, which I find really uh, great and encouraging. But it, how do you do that? How do you present not knowing as an uh Yeah, expertise. Well,
1: one answer might be that in design, we always talk about having a beginner's mindset. So pretending knowledge before you have it is kind of antithetical to the way that we practice. So I think people always expect us to be having a learning edge, maybe not about design, but about whatever specific subject matter or project relates to. So it feels like it comes naturally and that it's okay. But I think probably a lot of it also in practice depends on the type of team you have and environment you work in. So I'm working in an in-house environment right now, you know, staffing projects with one or two other designers. And so if we're all coming together to brainstorm about how to approach something, it feels natural and okay to say, it's great that you all are thinking about this approach. I should just say, I've never done this before, but I'm totally down to try it. That feels safe, you know, within your design team. I think it could be harder probably in consulting where you're coming in truly as this, um, and I've been there too, as the expert in process. And then- I don't know. What are the spaces you can create for yourself outside of your client's um watchful eye where you are still learning and being able to admit things you don't know.
0: And I, I think we've had an episode about building communities and finding communities uh which might be uh quite relevant to this conversation. And I think you need those uh you need you need to have those conversations as a reality check. Like uh yeah. it's okay, not not knowing like like you said. Having the beginner's mind is actually an asset and uh finding people finding a tribe where that's appreciated and understood and encouraged is uh yeah, is is highly recommended.
1: Yeah. Natalie's got a lot of wisdom on that topic.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a good episode two two circle episodes ago. Um now uh we had um A dozen people in our circle conversation uh anything that you sort of took away from the stories that people brought in that they shared um
1: yeah i think uh more people than you would think have gotten into this field in a roundabout way and when you think about it it actually makes complete sense because you know formal training programs i don't know about worldwide but at least in the united states where i'm from um have you know uh not always been available. And access is always a huge issue when it comes to graduate education, you know, furthers the gap uh, between people of different socioeconomic status, people who have the ability to pursue it and people who don't. So I think you can never never judge on the basis of whether someone has a degree, uh, what that means about their dedication to the field or their knowledge. And it was cool to see that there are people in the circle who have been cracking the books, self-training and learning on their own. Um, and being able to let their work speak for itself. And then, yeah, for all the people who have like kind of formal graduate work in the field, it was just really cool to hear from them. And also to see, you know, that a lot of the things that, that people um, grapple with in terms of imposter syndrome and creative confidence are similar across the field. So it might just be a big rallying cry for all of us to just feel, feel more confident. And like you said, just like go out and try stuff and see the most expedient and also most creative way to, to solve your problem or achieve your goal. It just felt like a group that you know can have a lot of honesty with each other and be able to say that that's how they're feeling no matter where they're coming from and that's a, a great space that you've created
0: awesome happy to hear that you enjoyed it um now maybe one of our my final questions for this conversation is what would you say to uh emily from five years ago which which advice do you wish you've had gotten
1: Oh my God we're just talking about service design now right because <laughs>
0: yes <laughs> I
1: could say a lot of things yeah it's, this question is so like live and present for me today that it feels as relevant today as it did five years ago but if I think about five years ago when I was just starting to again like compose my professional narrative make my portfolio um, it's going to sound like a broken record, but I wish I could just feel more confident. Like the work I had done by then already was like really putting design in practice and making clients happy, making um, interacting with a lot of like wonderful participants in these nonprofit programs. And I, yeah, I had already, I had already done so much and like really, like we talked about, kind of like learned the basic frameworks, even if I hadn't applied every single tool. So I wish I could have just said, like, you are the person that has the solution. And you're the person and whatever approach you want to take, no matter how creative or whether it's in a textbook or not,
0: can totally be the right approach. And, and was this literally something that happened overnight that you sort of came to the conclusion or the realization that it's already good enough or was it a process?
1: It sounds creepy to say, but it was kind of an overnight thing. I'm trying to remember what exactly triggered it, but um, I just had a moment. I think I was like in a weird place applying for these like UX research jobs that weren't quite what I wanted. They weren't service design. They were like kind of really focused. And at that point that field already had, it felt like a really uh, rigid kind of career path that you start off doing the operations and the recruiting and then you are the junior and then you're the senior. So that was getting a little harder to, to break into at any level. And yeah, I, I just had this moment where I was like, you can only be successful if you are the biggest believer in yourself. I know it sounds so corny, but that's totally what happened and then everything turned around for me.
0: Often uh, the most simple advice is the most powerful advice and uh, I think this is a great way to sort of conclude uh, our conversation uh, today. Uh, is there anything uh, else that you feel we haven't discussed which should have been discussed?
1: I think one thing I'll reinforce but we did say it is the importance, you know, if you if you want to create a space where everyone is valued, making it a safe space where everyone can learn and grow and admit the growth areas that they have. I think that's something that we can all do within our teams and then we can model for the team within ourselves by, by being open and authentic. I've seen people do that and just had wonderful role models in the workplace that have enabled me to grow in that way. And I think we can all be that person.
0: Yeah, a great example of leadership uh, these days are to, to actually acknowledging your blind spots and being open to growing and learning. So yeah, cool. I, uh, I absolutely second that. Emily, thanks uh, so much for coming on to the Service Design Show for hosting this amazing Circle um, conversation. The Circle is continuing uh, every month. So uh, I'm really happy that we had the opportunity to uh, have you as our host. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll see each other in a future Circle event or outside.
1: Definitely. And thank you. It's my pleasure. It's great to meet everyone.
0: If you've made it this far into the conversation, I really hope that you enjoyed it and learned something new. Don't forget that if you're an in-house service designer who wants to be part of conversations like this in the future, consider joining The Circle. In The Circle, you'll find the time to reflect on your practice and connect with and learn from other in-house service design professionals right now we're creating the calendar for the events in 2022 so if you'd like to know more about that or know how to apply head over to servicedesignshow.com slash circle and you'll also find the link to that in the show notes of this episode i really want to thank you again for listening to the service design show it was a great pleasure having you as always keep making a positive impact and i'll catch you in the next episode